0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, and reading from verse 10 to verse 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. These words, I say, are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Nothing is made so plain and clear in the teaching of the New Testament as the fact that the Christian is a new man. He is not merely a good man. He is not merely a better man than others. He is essentially a new man. What makes us Christian is that we undergo a rebirth, that we become Partakers of the divine nature, that the life of God enters into our souls, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The New Testament is forever emphasizing that, as the Apostle Paul puts it, in writing his second letter to the Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. And the result of that is that all things are passed away. Behold, he says, All things are Become new. And that is, as I say, the great characteristic of the Christian. Everything is new to him. And that is so because he's got a new mind. He sees things in an entirely new way and manner. He's got a new outlook, new orientation. His whole standpoint and attitude towards everything is influenced by this profound change that has taken place within him. So that, therefore, anything that happens to the Christian immediately becomes a test of him as a Christian. Because of this new mind and outlook, his reaction to everything is of necessity different from the reaction of other people. I say all that for this reason. The Christian views a day like this, this Remembrance Day, as we have come to call it, in an entirely different way and manner from all who are not Christians. We are in the same world as everybody else, subject to the same events, same accidents. We are citizens of this earthly kingdom as everybody else, and yet I say because we are Christians. Nothing is the same to us as it is to everybody else. We have our own peculiar, particular view of this day, this day of remembrance, as we have our own particular view of everything else. Very well, then, a day like this, I say, comes as a test to those of us who claim to be Christian. What does it mean to us? How do we view it? How should we observe it? What is its message to us? What is its meaning? What does it really represent? Now, there are many possible ways of reacting to a day like this. There are many different ways in which it can be observed. There are many different ways in which a service in a Christian church can be conducted on this day. It can be something purely formal, dictated by the circumstances, purely formal, without any real life or spiritual content. It can be purely national, regarded entirely from the national standpoint. In other words, it can be observed in the way that the world outside observes it, except that there is a kind of religious veneer or atmosphere added to it, but essentially something national. It can be an occasion for pride and self-congratulation. It can be nothing but an occasion for mourning. It can be an occasion for thanksgiving. It can be, and probably will be very largely today, an occasion when people will consider the international situation and express themselves with regard to international politics as to what should be done and what shouldn't be done, and so on and so forth, working out the various ramifications of armaments and things of that description. Now, there are many ways in which then this day can be approached, but I want to suggest this morning that the truly Christian way of approaching it is the way that is indicated in these words that we are looking at together. Here is the spiritual approach. And it's not only the spiritual approach, it is at the same time, of course, the only radical, the only deep way of approaching it. That is, uh, we claim for the New Testament teaching, for the Christian gospel, The outstanding characteristic of the biblical view of everything, it's a profound view. It's never content with just looking at things on the surface. It's not just observation. It doesn't give the obvious answers and explanations. It's never concerned merely about the cliches. The great characteristic of the biblical view of the whole of life and of the whole of human history is profundity. It goes down to the very depths. It rarely, and it alone, raises the fundamental questions, and it alone has an adequate answer to those questions. Well, I'm suggesting, therefore, that here is, is the true way of approaching this particular day of remembrance. The apostle here really leads us to the very heart of the matter, now, those who attend here regularly will know that we've been looking at this statement uh, for a number of uh, Sunday mornings. Because the Apostle here lays down this uh, great proposition. This world of ours, and the whole course of human history, is in the last analysis nothing but the arena in which a mighty spiritual conflict is taking place. And that is a conflict between God and the forces of heaven, and the devil, and the forces of evil, and of hell. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that, according to the Bible, is the real ultimate explanation of the whole of human history. Biblical history? Secular history outside the Bible. That's the ultimate explanation of it all. So we've been going back and we've been tracing the biblical teaching with regard to the origin of evil, the origin of the devil, and of these principalities and powers. And not only that, we have seen how these powers and forces first entered into human history. It's the great story of the fall. And you can't understand the world today without the doctrine of the fall. There is no other explanation. All the talk of the philosophers and the psychologists has been ridiculed by the history of this twentieth century. The fall alone explains why man is as he is. So we have seen that, as the result of the fall, when man came and when the devil came and tempted men, and men in his folly listened and fell, we have seen. That the result of that has been that the devil and these powers have been dominating the life of mankind. Man is the slave of sin. He is the slave of the devil. The devil is the god of this world. We are in the kingdom of darkness by nature. That's the great teaching of the Bible. And then we have seen that the devil and his forces exert this power upon us. And they do so by attacking our minds first and foremost but not only our minds, our moral nature, and indeed even our bodies. We've been looking into into all that, and we have seen that there is more to follow. The whole question of demonology, devil possession, the whole question of spiritism, and many of these occult uh, problems and events which take place, all that is a part and parcel of this great teaching. Now there we've been looking at it all, as it applies primarily to the individual. But this morning, we are to look at it on a, a vaster scale, a larger field. For the devil does not confine his operations to attacking individuals. It is an essential part of the teaching of this book that he does so with the larger groupings of mankind, with states, with nations, with continents. He operates on this worldwide scale as well as upon the individual person. And now what we want to consider this morning is the teaching which we have at this point. With regard to that, we shall return again, God willing, to the more individual aspect of this matter. But today, surely, it behoves us to look at it more in general, and in any case, we have to do so, to be true in our exposition of what we are told here. Very well, let me try and summarize the principles which are taught here and in the whole Bible with regard to a day like this, day of remembrance, a day in which we remember particularly two world wars that have taken place within this one century. And we are all aware of the state of the world at this moment. We see these horrible armaments being piled up. Are we on the brink of a third world war? These are the thoughts that are in the minds of everybody. But now, let's see how the Bible approaches it all. The first thing that he deals with is the cause of wars. What's the cause of it all? Now, that's the first question. You see, the tragedy today is that people don't seek the causes. They're so bemused by particular symptoms and manifestations that they proceed at once to them and to apply their medicaments to them. They've never realized the cause. They'd be talking about armaments and things like that, but the, the Bible doesn't. The Bible is concerned about root causes, fundamental explanations. And what are they? What is the cause of it all? Well, here's the answer. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The answer is not merely human. The causes of war are not to be found only in men. Because so many think they are. Ah, they say, if that Kaiser hadn't lost his head, there would never have been the First World War. Then that man, Hitler, and so on, Stalin, Khrushchev, so on, they're interested in men. That's the mentality of the politicians and many who follow them, the vast majority of the people. It's all a matter of men. No, says the Bible, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It isn't men. In other words, it isn't merely economic, There are so many who think that the whole problem is purely economic, and if only you could deal with this fundamental problem of uh, economics, on the one hand they say if there wasn't communism, all would be well, and and they in turn say if there wasn't capitalism, all would be well, and both sides are agreed in thinking it's mainly an economic matter. Not so, according to this book, because that's ultimately human. Neither is it merely something political. That element comes in, of course, all these elements come in, but these are merely the things that are used, that it is not a a conflict against flesh and blood. Well, what is it then? Well, uh, the answer is that it is entirely the result of the operation of the devil and the principalities and powers, the rulers, the world rulers of this darkness, this spiritual wickedness in high places or in the heavenlies, if you like. It's all the work of the devil, as he operates upon individuals, as he operates upon these larger groupings. Now, the one supreme object of the devil is to bring in confusion and to bring in chaos. Why? Well, because God's work is always characterized by order, by perfection. Everything that God does is orderly. It's perfect. It has symmetry. And the devil, hating God as he does, filled with pride and antagonism against God, he is out, I say, to destroy God's handiwork. So he ever is a cause of turmoil, a cause of discord, cause of confusion. And what can he do better in that respect than to produce war? And that is what he's been doing throughout the running centuries. Now, James, you've noticed in that fourth chapter of his epistle, in verse one, says, Whence come wars amongst you? He answers, Even of your lusts that war within you. But where do they come from? Well, we saw last Sunday morning, this is the work of the devil, playing upon the mind, playing upon the moral nature. And thus he stimulates uh, these unworthy elements in fallen men. And so you have your explanation of war. But let me work it out a little. How does he do it? Well, what he does, of course, in the first instance, is to produce lawlessness. You see, here is the devil attacking the mind. That was the original temptation, lawlessness. God had laid down his law for the man and the woman in the garden. The devil immediately queries it. Lawlessness, rebellion, setting law and order on one side, taking the law into your own hands, doing what you want to do. That's the cause of war, ultimately. Of every kind of war. It's the cause of the moral warfare in this country today. It's the cause of these major problems that are confronting us. These robberies with violence, murder, all that's happening to foul the life of this nation. It's ultimately due to lawlessness. And that's the devil. And you get that amongst nations. This Disregard for law and for the sanctities of law. That's the root cause, ultimately, of all wars. People taking the law into their own hands. They may have signed agreements. They may have given their solemn pledge at a a conference. But then, for their own reasons, they suddenly break it all. Take the law into their own hands and act. Isn't that the cause of war? But that's what's produced by the devil. He produces lawlessness and rebellion. And then, to work it out a little more in detail... He works, as we saw in the individual last Sunday, upon our pride. And I suppose the most prolific cause of all wars throughout the centuries has been just this question of pride. It's been the cause of wars between individuals. It's been the cause of wars between nations. Nations proud of themselves and their national sovereignty and exaggerating themselves. And that, of course, always leads to jealousy amongst others and envy and opposition and so on. You read your secular history books and you'll find that pride is one of the greatest causes of war and it's ever something that is produced by the devil. And then with pride, of course, goes greed and selfishness. You put yourself first. You feel that you're an exceptional person and that you have a right to everything. Nations feel that, that they have a right to possess the whole earth. So they'll go and attack a nation without any provocation, and they'll conquer it, and they'll possess it. It's greed, it's selfishness. It's just a manifestation of that original pride, that exaggerated notion of self, this puffing up that was the uh, ultimate cause, you remember, of the fall of the devil himself. And these working as fossils, of course, ever lead to a spirit of distrust and of uncertainty. You see that man beginning to set himself up, so you begin to watch him. And you, in turn, tend to have the same thing developing in yourself. And so the whole atmosphere of war is created. Now, these are the fundamental causes. There are foolish people who say it's making armaments that, that cause war, but the question is, what makes men make their armaments? Why should they ever think of doing so? You've got to go back to the radical cause. And there it is. Now, the Bible is full of illustrations of all this. The first great illustration, of course, is Cain. Here are two brothers, Cain and Abel. Here's psychology. Here's the profound biblical philosophy. Why are there wars? Well, there are wars because there are people like Cain. Began to feel jealous of his brother. Without any reason, without any cause. But it's all this terrible thing that's introduced by the devil and the principalities and powers. This is what we're fighting against. He insinuates into the mind and we're not aware of it. We feel we're innocent. We never do any harm at all. It's always the other nation that does harm. But the other nation saying exactly the same about us. Cain, there it is in a nutshell. And all the various fights and quarrels. Look at that story of Naboth's vineyard. That king... Ahab, who had so many great possessions, he wanted this other one. He had no right to it. It was this man Naboth's little possession. But this great king, he must have it. He wants it. So he, instigated by his wife Jezebel, proceeds to take it in an unlawful manner. That's the cause of war. That's what's happening on the scale of nations. You apply that and you'll see that you've got the explanation of most of the great wars of history. Now, let's work this out on a larger scale. This doesn't merely happen in individuals and not merely in groups and in nations. It happens on even a wider scale. Look at the people before the flood as you find them described in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. The lawlessness, the vice, the evil, and that always leads to quarreling. Man setting himself up in pride, turning away from God. Look at the Tower of Babel. That's another illustration of exactly the same thing. This is the pride of unregenerate fallen men, always setting himself up. Look at the wars that Israel had to fight against the other nations. It's all a part of the same thing. Look what you read in the Old Testament about great dynasties like Assyria, and Babylon, and Medo-Persia, and Rome, rising up. What's the cause of all this? Well, it's nothing but this inflated pride These great empires, which try to spread themselves over the whole world, they come up one after another. It's all described here, and they've been the cause of the wars, and the turmoils, and the wretchedness, and the unhappiness of the human race. But I want to go even a step further. So far, we've been looking at the, uh, what I would call the general operation of the devil and his forces. The way in which, as it were, he keeps himself in the background, but nevertheless insinuates these ideas into the individual and into the nations. But we must take it further, because quite clearly there's another element, which we must call the demonic element. And as you look back at the biblical history and at the secular history, you cannot but see this demonic element arising. Now I mean this. That it isn't merely the selfishness and the uh, evil and the pride and all the rest of it. Uh, There's sometimes an an additional factor. Now, let me give you an illustration or two. Take that one uh, which we had at the beginning in the fourth chapter of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. There was a man, you see, into whom undoubtedly this demonic element came in. He was not only inflated with pride and a sense of his own greatness. He went beyond it. He wanted to be worshipped as a god. He set himself up as a god and he demanded people's worship. Now, it's just there the demonic element comes in. That isn't mere evil, as it were. There is something further. There is a kind of possession. The man becomes possessed. Gets beyond himself, beside himself. Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, you've got the same thing in Antiochus Epiphanes again described in the book of Daniel and known in the secular history between the book of Malachi and the gospel of Matthew, that terrible period through which the Israelites, the children of God, had to go in the times of the Maccabees and so on. Here's another man who demanded worship, set himself up as a god. Now, this is something extra. This demonic element comes in. And, of course, you had the same thing in the Roman Empire. These men were not only great military conquerors, they began to set themselves up as gods. They introduced emperor worship. This was one of the great fights that the early Christians had to fight. They said that Jesus is Lord, but the Roman Empire said Caesar is Lord. And they demanded that these men should say Caesar is Lord, and they wouldn't say it. So they were thrown to the lions in the arena. Emperor worship, Caesar worship, now that's demonic. It's the only word for it. It's a setting itself up for worship and for adoration. It's turning itself into a god. That's the thing the devil did. That is the demonic element. You get the same thing in Mohammed. There is no question about that. Mohammedanism has this same demonic element in it. It is a man setting himself up and inflating himself. And it led to so many of the so-called religious wars. And this demonic element is something that has persisted, and it has continued to show itself from time to time in the long history of the human race. Now, there are many disputed instances of this. Personally, I would not put Napoleon into this category. I think Napoleon can be explained entirely in human terms and in terms of evil. I don't think the demonic element was there. He was just an outstanding military genius whose genius ran away with him. But when you come to a man like Hitler, there is no question about it. Here is a man who demanded a kind of personal attitude of worship and of adoration. Here is a man who was, in the wrong sense, religious. A man who worshipped himself. He worshipped his own race. He worshipped his own administration. The, the, the demonic element clearly came in He demanded complete control over the minds of men, over the whole of men. Now, that's where the demonic element comes in. Napoleon never did that. It's no part of my purpose to defend Napoleon, but it is important we should have clearly in our minds this demonic element and where exactly it comes in. You've got it, I say, in a man like Hitler, and undoubtedly you've got it in a system like communism. For communism really believes in a worshipping of the state, it doesn't stop merely at an economic order. A man, again, has got to give this totalitarian allegiance. It claims a right over men's thinking. The scientist has got to think within prescribed terms. Your novelists have got a right within prescribed terms. There it is. It is in communism as it was in Hitlerism. Anything that turns into a worship of a man or of a state or of a system, anything that demands a totalitarian allegiance, is demonic. Let's be honest, there have been evidences of that in the history of this, our own country. There are people who are still guilty of it, they're not aware of it. It's never been an official policy in this country, but in practice and in private, it has very often been present. There has been a kind of mystique about the British Empire, which to me has had demonic elements in it, and that is where we all needs must be careful. Well, now I'm giving you certain great principles very hurriedly, but that is the biblical explanation As to the cause of war, you don't stop at men, you see. You don't stop at economic or political causes. Behind it is this other element, manifesting itself in one or the other of these various ways. But let me hurry to a second principle. What, according to the Bible, have been God's enactments in the light of this? What has God, as it were, been doing in the light of this activity of the devil and the principalities and the powers and the world rulers of this darkness, the spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places? And it seems to me we can divide the answer into two main sections. There have been what I would call the temporary measures taken by God. What do I mean by the temporary measures? I am referring to the institution of governments and of powers that be. You remember the classical statement is in Romans 13 at the beginning. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now then, here is the first part of the answer. Because of this influence of the devil and his forces and evil and sin, God introduced the notion of government, kings and princes and magistrates, and uh, he gave to them certain powers. As Paul puts it there, the magistrate beareth not the sword in vain. Governments not only lay down laws, they enforce them. They have the power to do so. They are able to uh, demand uh, forms of punishment for law-breaking. That is the whole essence of the notion of government. Now, it is the biblical teaching that it is God who's introduced government, not men. It isn't men who gradually evolved from the tribal ideas into the notion of governments as we think of them. It is God who prescribed it. The states and governments are of divine ordination. And what are they for? Well, here is the answer. They are meant to restrain and to keep within bounds These forces of evil and of chaos which are ever being enlivened by the activity of the devil and his powers. Here they are trying to cause dislocation and chaos and turmoil and war. The business of government is to restrain them, to keep them in order. That is the essence of the biblical teaching. God instituted the whole notion of government. And that is the primary task of government is to preserve law and order and to prevent chaos. But that isn't the only thing we find here. There is another element. Quite clearly, God has permitted certain things to happen from time to time. God has allowed certain persons and certain powers to arise and to arrogate unto themselves almost endless powers. There have been many attempts in the history of the world on the part of individuals and nations and empires to dominate the whole world. They have tried to become world conquerors. They have said that they wanted to produce peace and order, but they said the way to do it is for us to conquer everything, and we'll keep everybody down, and then there'll be no war, because we will be preserving peace. And God has permitted this. He permitted it, do you remember, before the flood. He permitted those foolish people to build their tower of Babel into heaven. They thought they'd got all knowledge. They'd encompassed the whole of truth. They were going to build a tower right into heaven. He allowed them to build it up to a point. We've seen that he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do what he did. You'll read again in the fifth chapter of Daniel that he allowed a man called Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, to do almost exactly the same thing. He allowed the Assyrians to build a mammoth empire that looked as if it was going to conquer the whole universe. He allowed Egypt to do it. He allowed Alexander the Great to do it. This a persian Greek dynasty. He allowed the Romans to do it in their great Roman empire. And later he allowed Turkey to do it. Mohammedism and the Turkish empire looked as if they were going to conquer the whole world. Now, here is the interesting teaching. God, uh, in his eternal and inscrutable wisdom, seems to allow these powers and these persons to do these things. They rise up and they spread themselves. They, as it were, try and attempt to stride the world as some sort of a colossus. And indeed, nothing seems to be able to stop them. And on and on they grow and people tremble and the whole world is quaking. And you feel here at last is a man who is a semi-God. But invariably... Without a single exception. Just when the man has arrived at the very zenith of his power. God suddenly arises against him in judgment. And pronounces his judgment upon him. And brings him down. And destroys him and his power. Oh, that's a great story in Daniel 4. Look at this man who stands up as a giant, as a god almost, and demands the worship of the people. Yes, but look at him in a few months. There he is like an ox in a field eating grass. And look at his nails. They're like talons. And look at his skin. It's almost got the feathers of a bird upon it. What a fool! What a monstrosity! What's happened to him? Oh, it's God who has just put him in his place, reminding him that there is only one God and that nobody is to be worshipped but God. Now this is to me the most uh, interesting uh, fact in human history in many ways. How God has never allowed any man or any nation or any power or any theory to dominate the whole. And my friends, he never will. Let every empire beware. An empire that begins to lose its head and imagines it's endless and almost divine is as certain to come to destruction as Nebuchadnezzar came. And look at Belshazzar. There he is in his feast with his concubines and his drink. Typical modern pertinent, isn't he? And what's he using for his drink? He is using the vessels taken out of the temple of God in Jerusalem. He is using these very holy cups to drink his drink and to have his revelry with these concubines and all his associates. But you remember what happened, don't you? In the very midst of the feast and the jollifications, and the rejoicing about his greatness, the hand, the hand and the writing, many, many, tekel, you fasten. Thou hast been weighed in the balances and found wanting, thy kingdom is judged. You've come to the end, and down he goes. And so it is with all of them. Alexander the Great dies at an early age of an aneurysm. Rome, in all its greatness, when it felt that it was supreme, was conquered by the Goths and the Vandals and the barbarians. Turkey, likewise, was brought down. What of Egypt by now? And so it has been with every one of them. God permits these things for a while, but only for a while. He rises. Suddenly they're destroyed. Read the story of Assyria in the Indian Old Testament. It's the great story everyone. Well, now, there then is God's temporary measures. That's how he acts in a temporary fashion. But, of course, God doesn't merely take temporary measures. He's got an ultimate measure. And that's the theme of the Bible. What is the ultimate measure? Well, it's this. He announced it in the Garden of Eden. When men fell, God came and said to the men, there's going to be a warfare between the seed of that serpent and your seed. There'll be a terrible fight, he said, a conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. This is not a temporary measure. This is the ultimate measure. God is introducing his new kingdom. It starts there in the Garden of Eden and it runs on through the Old Testament. Christ came in the fullness of times. It's the bringing in of the kingdom. It'll go on until you come to the fulfillment of what you read in the book of Revelation. When the kingdoms of this world shall have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. When the devil and all his forces will be finally routed and all belong to them and cast into the lake of fire and of burning. That's the ultimate purpose. That's the great message of the Bible. Don't confuse between them the temporary measures, the ultimate measure. These are only temporary things. God allows these to rise, brings them down. Another arises, down they go. This old temporary, keep your eye on the ultimate. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, it's coming, it's being introduced, its citizens are being gathered together, it'll go on until the final clash. And Christ, the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness, will reign supreme over all. Very well, let me come to a third principle, which is this. What is the Christian's duty then in the light of all this and in the midst of all this? Let me but give my answers in the form of headings. One, it is to avoid and to restrain all causes of war. What are they, the things I've already been talking about? A Christian never says, my country, right or wrong. A Christian never says that. That is terrible sin. He doesn't say, my country, right or wrong. He is never a party to jingoism. Secondly, he is a man who should refuse to fight in an aggressive war. If his country sets out in an aggressive war, to steal another nation's property or country or whatever it is, the Christian should refuse to participate. He must never be guilty of this pride in himself or in his nation. He must never be guilty of this selfishness, this greed, this avarice, this evil spirit. He stands against it, and he must refuse to be any partaker in it. Well, what is he to do then? Well, he is to aid the state and the government which is appointed of God to arrest and to subjugate as as far as is possible the forces of evil, by which I mean this. That he isn't a man who contracts out of it, saying, I'm a Christian, I don't take part in this. I start a campaign of civil disobedience. I don't take part in war. He doesn't say that. He doesn't take part, as I say, in an aggressive war. But I would argue that it is his duty as a citizen to take part in a war that is meant to restrain aggression and to punish evil and to keep it within bounds. The powers that be are ordained of God... Pacifism is heresy, it is not Christian teaching. The Christian does not contract out. It is a part of his business as a creature, a citizen of God's kingdom, to aid the powers that be, to restrain evil forces, and to keep them within bounds, even to the extent of fighting in a war, but never in an aggressive war. Only ever always to restrain evil and to keep it within bounds. That, it seems to me, is the duty of the Christian in the light of all this. And that brings me to my last general heading and principle, which is this one. What is the future outlook, therefore? What have I got to say this morning? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, from what I've been saying. There is nothing which is so fatuous and so ridiculous as the false optimism which followed especially the First World War. The ridiculous blind men who described that as the war to end war. The people who then went mad thinking that the League of Nations was going to put an end to war. There is nothing that I know of that is more unchristian than that. That is complete spiritual blindness. A man who can believe that has never understood the essence of the biblical teaching concerning the fall. Do you remember the excitement about the Locarno Pact? They thought, at last we've done it. A pact to outlaw war. We didn't have to wait long to see the folly of that, did we? And my dear friends, it's still the same. A man who believes that any league or union or organization is going to banish war is a man who's never understood the spiritual teaching of the Bible. Never understood it. He hasn't seen it. He's thinking in terms of flesh and blood. And he doesn't understand the nature of men. He hasn't any knowledge of the devil and the principalities and powers. Man will never introduce an era of peace. We are not promised it. The Bible says we'll never have it as long as man is in sin. You say, what terrible pessimism. Yes, it is, but it's the truth. It's realism. There's nothing that I know of that is so fatuous as to lash ourselves up into a false optimism just to feel a little bit happier while we're in a service and then go back and face the world as it is. My dear friends, it is the Son of God who said, there shall be war and rumors of wars whence come wars amongst you even of the lusts that war within you and while there is lust in men there'll be war how can you hope to put an end to war while men have lust towards another man's wife or his possessions or anything that's war and nations are nothing but aggregates of individuals And there is this demonic element. The devil, as long as he has any power, will produce chaos and confusion and antagonism and war. You say, what a terrible picture. I wish I hadn't come to this service. I see. Is that your attitude? Are you content just to pull down the blinds and not to face facts? That's to abdicate. That's to run away. That's not to use your reason. No, no, let's face it. Primarily the Bible is pessimistic because it's realistic, but oh, ultimately. Here is the optimism, here is the assurance. How do I face the future? As a Christian, I face it like this. I expect nothing from men. I expect nothing from conferences. I expect nothing from leagues or United Nations organizations Call it what you will. That's why I don't preach about them. I don't want to waste my breath. I don't want to waste your time. They're simply turning round and round in a circle. They're temporary expedients that ever come to nothing. It's not a part of the spiritual message at all. I expect in the future what? Anything. Anything. I shall be surprised at nothing. There may be a period of peace. There may not be. I don't know nobody knows anything is possible from men in sin there have been long periods of temporary peace but only temporary there have been periods when you've had war after war 100 years war you may get any of that in the future i can't tell you we don't know but what i do know is this that that's the sort of thing that'll go on until God's appointed day shall have arrived. He's got a day. He's got an appointed day. There is a definite end to history. I don't know when. I don't understand the times and seasons. The Bible tells me not even to try to do so. All I know is this. There is the promised day of God. The day of the Lord. The day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, riding the clouds of heaven surrounded by the holy angels. And he will destroy his every enemy, the devil, the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness, the spiritual wickedness in the high places. They will all be finally destroyed. And Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. There is a day coming when wars shall be no more, when there shall be no sorrow, nor sighing, when the swords will indeed be turned into plowshares, when the lion will lie down with the lamb. But when is it? Oh, it's at the end of history. It is when Christ ushers in his glorious, eternal, everlasting kingdom. That is the ultimate outlook because it is God's ultimate plan. So whatever you and I may have to endure, let's be prepared for it. We may have to go through another war. We may see a world power arising that will persecute us and cast us into prisons. We may have to die for the name of Christ like the first Christians did and many another Christian has had to do throughout the running centuries. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that all who belong to Christ shall be with him in that kingdom of glory. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, and I shall be walking in it. This is my interest, this is my concern. Oh, much greater than my concern about the future of this country. I'm interested in that as a citizen, but this other is my concern. Whatever may happen to this country, or to any country, I am a citizen of heaven, my citizenship is there. And I look forward to walking under the new heavens, in the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And looking into the face of the Prince of Peace. Amen.